G'day, everyone. Welcome to Talking Leadership. This is Eric Perez. Thank you for joining us on our ongoing podcast series. This particular episode continues our look at leadership in the military context. And so I'll start, as I always do, by way of introduction, initially with my podcast co-host, Mr. Ben Deverson, the owner, manager, and uh, entrepreneur at uh, Organized. How are you, Ben? I'm great, Eric. How are you doing, mate? I'm fantastic. And more importantly, above myself, all Ben is today's guest. So by way of introduction, our guest has over 20 years of experience serving in the Australian public service, including 14 years as an intelligence officer with the Royal Australian Air Force. She's the youngest person to attend the Australian Defence Force Academy at age 16, and in January of 2003 was deployed as part of an inaugural headquarters established to support P3 maritime patrol aircraft in the Middle East. In addition, during her Air Force career, she studied Arabic, providing strategic intelligence to support whole-of-government decision-making and has served as an aide-de-camp, I hope I said that right, to the Governor-General. She's also remained part of the Contemporary Air Force through her reserve work as a ground crew member for the RAF Hot Air Balloon. She's also found her calling as a public servant over a decade ago and has worked in a number of governance program and policy roles across the defence, finance and veterans affairs portfolios at the Commonwealth level. Good Lord, I'm not going to keep reading this. Uh, In April 2020, our guest joined the South Australian government as the head of Veterans SA, a state government agency responsible for encouraging and supporting the community of veterans and their families and helping South Australians understand the valuable contribution that military service makes to the community every single day. As a proud public servant, our guest believes her daily purpose is to try and improve the lives of Australians now and into the future. And without further ado, can I welcome to the program, Catherine Walsh. How are you, Catherine? Hi, Eric. Hi, Ben. I'm doing very well down here in Adelaide. Mate, I, I think I need to I need to get off this podcast. I can't believe that bio. <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing uh, outline of experiences with the with the military. So I, I wouldn't mind starting off and, and throwing over to Ben to, to do the first question. But welcome to the podcast, mate. I'm looking forward to the chat. So Ben, over to you, mate. Uh, Catherine, uh, absolutely privileged to talk to you. And I have to just ask, the RAF hot air balloon, is that a metaphor for something? <laughs> no. It's, it sounds like an office I once worked in. <laughs> no, uh, the uh, Air Force has, in fact, four hot air balloons. It's used as a public relations tool. So it's really great to be able to go out, particularly to country towns, and really engage with the local community and share with them my experiences in the Air Force, the sort of opportunities that exist. And, yeah, everyone loves balloons and bands, so it's definitely one of the best reserve gigs out there. Fantastic. Well, they say the good gigs go to the good people, apparently, so it uh, sounds like <laughs> a good one. Now... Catherine, Eric has given us a good amount of detail about your career, but what we're interested in is the leadership aspect. So, so Catherine, what I'm keen to do is expand upon that, that wonderful bio, but hearing about uh, your leadership background and what, what it was about but that drew you to becoming a leader, joining the Defence Force at the tender age of 16, which I'm going to pick up again in a, in a few minutes, uh, and tell us about your leadership journey today. Yeah, sure. And I guess if I just start with the being 16, it's something that I guess when you're that age, you you feel fearless and you're 
like you can conquer anything. So it's only as I've become older and perhaps a little more cautious, I've realised actually uh, how monumentous that is. And it's probably one of the greatest challenges in retrospect that I've had in my life. But going back to sort of, I guess, how I found myself there and, and on a leadership journey, um, there's probably three things that I was thinking about uh, from my childhood in particular. Um, one, which I know is common with a number of guests on your uh, podcast, is around team sport. The difference is I was never the sporty type, never the team captain. I um, actually still have my under 11 participation trophy for a netball, uh, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> um, but what I probably learned from being in team sport is around the importance of followership so of course we think about leadership as being the people the person or the people who are out in front or in the sport context about the team captains or the ones who are excellent in their skills but that being part of a team and recognizing the different strengths that people can bring to that and the importance of following the leader um, is uh, I think really important as a foundational piece of my leadership journey. It's also about recognising how the group feels. So I was thinking about my um, my foray into soccer in high school. I was never very coordinated with my hands, hence I chose soccer. And the ones in the team who I saw through a leadership prism were the ones who would set me aside afterwards and say, hey, you know, why don't you try this, this and this? And that was about, you know, discreetly and in a dignified way, helping me build my skills. But then that builds for the team's benefit as well. So it wasn't about self. It was about how to make the constituent bits of the soccer team work really well together and then, you know, perform as a group. So I guess that was probably the first thing. I also went to a really amazing high school where as part of the culture, it was imbued as having a real service ethos, which again, built on that whole followership piece and learning to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. That was probably also the time I started to realise that leadership isn't isn't just about the charismatic person out the front. It's not just about the title that you have it's not about being the popular person it's about listening to others and making them feel valued and again being part of that that bigger picture and then the third part was my parents and probably my mum in particular and I'm hoping that that uh, this relates to you as well about doing what's right even when it's really hard so I was thinking about a time when I'd lied to one of my teachers and my mum marched me into the school. And you, I think we can all remember that that burning sensation on your face when you know you've done something wrong. You really don't want to say the words aloud, but you need to be accountable and responsible for your actions. And that's, I think, absolutely pivotal for any leader in any sector. And that was through the, the discipline and the, I guess, the foundations of leadership from my mum. Thank, thanks for sharing that, mate. I think the bringing the three strands together is is an interesting way uh, to bring that to bring that together. Together, the I'm glad that you mentioned the soccer thing there because I'm a soccer fan myself. I actually help with futsal at my kids' high school, so it's great that you do that. And you should be promoting soccer any chance that you get in uh, South Australia. That's a good thing to hear. One of the things about the beginning of leadership, and you did mention sport, and you mentioned family, and you also, you know, f- for me, I guess my pers- my perspective and my question here is. Looking back on it, and this is a hindsight thing, so it's always twenty twenty. But looking back on it, do you think what you learnt from family was a more pivotal lesson for you about what your leadership was going to look like in the future, or was it that that sporting and school context? Which 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 one was more formative for you? Is is I guess what I'm asking. 
So I'm going to take a middle line and say both, but for different reasons. So that particular piece around structure and being part of a bigger team, that both leadership and followership piece is definitely from sport. But the I mean, leadership is also about a value set and that's instilled through certainly in my experience is is through my family and, and those early uh, life experiences. So for me, the things that are absolutely pivotal in my value set and that I then champion and try and role model through leadership is by virtue of, of my childhood and, and growing up. Excellent. Thanks, mate. Ben? Now, I go a little rogue on these things, Catherine, so bear with me. I've got a, and I understand the context, I can see the buildings, I can see the cadets. So a 16-year-old Catherine walks in to one of the division buildings on a Saturday afternoon and all the adult age 18 pluses go, let's go hit the Mooseheads pub or the private bin or wherever else we used to go in Canberra. Was that tough for you? As a 16 slash 17-year-old in an environment such as the Defence Force Academy? Uh, I grew up a lot in my first year, let's Mm. put it that way. I guess I've always been used to being the youngest in my class. So being exposed to people who are a couple of years older in its own right didn't seem strange. But like you point out, there's a big difference to being the youngest in a school class versus, you know, in an adult environment. So I actually felt very supported and protected to be honest. I mean, I went out for dinner and would go dancing with everybody else. I was always part of a group who were willing to look after me and were not willing, but wanted to look after me and and just the same as I did for them too, if, if something got into trouble. Catherine, great answer. One thing that you and I actually have slightly in common there is that I was actually the youngest graduate in my Duntroon class in 1996, which was an interesting thing that a lot of people spoke to me as something I should be proud of, but others said that I should probably try and hide because senior NCOs would take advantage of me and all those various things. But dare I say that uh, that viewpoint could be uh, could not be more wrong because I only had very supportive senior NCOs. But how did you find that early leadership journey being a brand new officer in the Air Force and taking on that, that huge responsibility of suddenly being in charge of people and assets of that nature you had in your early career? So I guess being an intelligence officer, certainly in my early years, I didn't actually lead a team. I was part of a, of a team. So I guess my leadership was more around peer leadership rather than that hierarchical, you know, leader of a team uh, piece. So, but it was it was frightening to be honest because as a 19 year old, I have absolutely zero life experience. I have all this theory and I'm armed with you know best of intentions, and I found that. No one tried to set me up for failure. They'd let me sort of stumble a little bit and then there'd be someone there who would take me aside and go, hey, look, Catherine, you might just want to be aware of this or you might want to think about this. So overall, those first few years were incredibly supportive and I just took that for granted that that's what everyone else's experiences were. Now that you've done a decade outside the Defence Force, Catherine, What are your views on leadership in the military setting versus the civilian context? So noting I joined at 16 and was very malleable in my and impressionable in my ideas and my understanding of the world. What I learned about military leadership when I left and joined the public sector, I realised did not transfer readily. 
So in the 10 years that have passed, what I have sort of reflected on is military leadership is certainly a type of leadership and it exists very well within the hierarchical structure that is the military. And I would actually probably suggest uh, if I can just spend a bit of time distinguishing between command and leadership. So to me, I feel that most people in the military operate through a command system, which is around being in an authoritative position or a position of power by virtue of their title or their rank, their position, whereas to me, leadership is more in that influence piece. So of course, there is influence within that, but the structure very much supports and the the societal institutional norms of the military support a great level of compliance of if you are instructed to do something, frankly, there are punitive measures if you don't. Whereas when you leave the military, and this is what I struggled with in my first job, it's I really found it much more complex it's not the one's easier than the other because that's too binary but I didn't have those structures in place so I had to really learn about people's motivations and intentions and how to influence and encourage them that whilst I was the titular leader that respect came by virtue of of what I could bring to the team and leadership in a true sense if that distinction makes sense now that might be controversial I appreciate not at all it wouldn't be atypical of people who have served and then moved on from the military to do something else and it it makes a lot of sense what you're saying but just to, to tease something out a little bit do you think in that change you had some skills that you bought from the lead uh the military concept that Uh, context sorry I'm trying to find my words here context that you adapted for your work in the public service yes definitely definitely so I, I guess for me there was some key foundational transferable leadership skills and there's I guess three that I could really clearly articulate and I use on a regular basis so the first one is around decision making you're taught in the military to to make decisions based on the best available information that you've got at the time. And so I feel very comfortable in, in being able to make those snap decisions informed with the information that I have available. But then the second piece to that is about owning those decisions as well. And then the third part of decision making is there is this tacit almost, you know, subconscious risk-based decision-making process, again, based on on my military training. So that decision-making piece is sort of the first transferable skill. The second one, if I think about risk some more, after being in the military, risk has a really different perspective for me in the civilian context. So the immediacy of decision-making, I can usually buy myself a bit of time. Now, even if that's five minutes, just to be able to step back, have, an, have, have that, you know, just, just break the intensity, think about it, come back. I am very comfortable at being able to do that because I was used to, particularly in the Middle East, having to provide advice at really short notice. And there is no luxury of time when the aircraft flying in the Middle East has radioed back and wants to know something, then you have to get that intel to them ASAP. So I guess my approach to risk then in a civilian context is nuanced and and um, has a higher threshold. And I guess the third piece is about the importance of people when you're a leader. Now, I know that sounds like a really a real statement of the obvious, but if I look at some of my peers in the public sector who don't have military backgrounds, I think that some of the 
the skills that I've brought across that myself and, and other ex-military people have that really stand out are things like you get to know your people, you get to identify, you know, what their strengths are and how to bring the best out of them. It's about, I think leadership is about generosity and it's actually not about you, it's about the team and how do you provide that really safe space so people can try and and innovate and test and adjust. I don't like the word failure because in my context, I'm very blessed that very little is a failure. It's if that didn't work, well, we won't try that again and we'll go and do something else. And the third bit is being willing to do what your team does. So for example, at the moment, um, I, you know, in my current team, I'm trying to create a safe space and encourage people that you know, they can do things that they've never done before and, and it's okay, we'll learn from that. And now I have these personal growth opportunities where I now have to record little videos and uh, go on live radio and do things that I've never done before. So I have to walk that talk in the same way that I, you know, provide a supportive environment for my team as well. So I guess there's sort of the the three obvious transferable skills, that decision-making, that risk-based analysis and that getting to know your people piece. So in addition to me talking about those transferable, you know, foundational leadership skills, I think the other thing that is particularly unique in my background was being an intelligence officer and what those skills have brought for me as part of my leadership profile. So particularly I'm thinking about in the strategy space or the being able to think critically. In an intelligence frame, you always will develop up options for a commander to make a decision on and as part of that, you will have the most likely course of action that the enemy will take or the most dangerous course of action. And for me, that training that I had really, I think, helps me in terms of my leadership and being able to bring my team along to get the best outcomes because we we deliberately think about those sorts of things now. And it also encourages a curiosity because if you have to think in the shoes of the other person, then everything's on the table until it's not. So I guess that's probably something that's a bit different to traditional transferable leadership skills but I think is for me being an intelligence officer is what makes me the leader I am today. Brilliant thanks for sharing Matt. So Catherine in your experience is leadership in the military qualitatively different than the world you've experienced in the public service? No I don't think it's qualitatively different I think there's different emphases so uh, I guess at the end of the day if, if I think about leadership as being that influence piece and that people are unique and delightfully various and complex and and unpredictable you know it doesn't matter what structure you're part of I think that those experiences are the same if I think about leadership as sort of three circles of a Venn diagram and I'm in the middle I think about leadership as being influencing up about the traditional leading a team piece and the third circle is peer leadership and for me I think that the the up down piece of leadership particularly leading a team is more pronounced in the military than in my civilian context and in my civilian context I actually think it's mostly about peer leadership so if I I mean I just sort of talked a lot of words there can I maybe sort of describe what I mean when I say that absolutely So I guess if we think about the first one is we all have bosses that we want to influence. So that's that influencing up bit and thinking about how to do it in a way that that they will want to listen to you. So some bosses like to own the ideas early. So how to, you know, introduce this in a certain way that means they'll be amiable to it. I think that uh, that exists equally in the public sector as well. Well, 
my experience is public sector um, and in the military, but there are more layers often to get through in the military by virtue of its hierarchy. Whereas if you're a subject matter expert, it's a bit easier to get cut through to the boss in that upwards management piece in, in the public sector. That team leadership bit, as I think is you know done so well in the military, as we've sort of talked about already. And I think it's also perhaps a little bit more, um, again, I don't want to say simpler or more difficult but I think that it's more nuanced and straightforward in the military because if there's an expression of the mission and what the outcomes are that you have to achieve then there's a much clearer link between the bit that I do and then what that outcome is whereas um, it can be a little bit more esoteric um, or um, or less prescriptive in um, in a civilian context so that makes it harder but the third bit that I always think people don't pay as much attention to as they should is that peer leadership piece. And that's, you know, how do you influence your peers who are already so time and resource poor and convince them that they already don't have enough hours in the day and why should they help you to achieve what you need at the detriment potentially of of something else that they have to do that's a priority for them? So that's that really key. And, and you don't have positional power then. You've just got to negotiate and influence and compel them that this is a great idea for both of us and for these reasons. And I think the other thing too is we often forget that if there's more senior people and they want to they want to know who, who Ben and Eric are, they're going to ask your peers for that real unfiltered view. So again, I think the greatest relationships to invest in and is probably more pronounced in the civilian context than in the military context is, is that peer piece. Mm. Look, that's an interesting comment. And probably the, the best put that I've heard, Eric, across a number of our podcasts, particularly the peer piece, we've really been focused on what you referred to, Catherine, earlier as followership. There's been seldom that that context of peer leadership brought into our discussion. So um, that's an interesting point, particularly that point where you make the comment about seeking assistance from a peer and convincing them that your priority is higher than theirs. It is influent. Anyway, I think it's a it was a quite a unique comment in the context of what we've been asking many guests, Eric. Because I, I guess at different levels, they want different things out of you. And uh, oh, it was interesting that you note your your key leader capabilities in that context. And I might go a bit rogue here, if that's okay, Ben, and, and combined our next two questions, which is, do you think you're, and, and again, I'm, I'm asking you to do some hindcasting here, so that there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm just uh, looking to see what your, 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 your thinking on this is that, do you think what you view now as critical leader capabilities changed from when you were a younger professional to now having lived some life? Look, I think definitely for me, it's changed. I, when I was younger and my early years in the military, it was very much around that charismatic leader being out the front, the person who, you know, had all the answers or certainly could get them really quickly, you know, great orators. There's almost a, um, a romanticism around that that's perpetuated through, certainly through literature and through movies. And so, and I think in some ways that that's supported then by virtue of the command structure in the military uh, that to be in those positions you need to be more senior whereas for me now I actually think that the things that are critical to being a leader is actually recognizing as I think I said earlier that it's not 
actually about you. It's about everybody else. And how do you create that space for them to, that's safe for them to thrive, for them to make mistakes and not be looking over their shoulder going, oh my gosh, you know, I tried to do the right thing. It didn't turn out the way I wanted. I'm waiting for some, you know, the bricks to come falling down on me as opposed to, oh, well, that's fine. We learned from that. Um, you know, we'll dust ourselves up. Oh, that was a bit awkward. Um, don't worry. You know, I'm the boss. I'll take the the accountability and responsibility piece. And that's common in, in both. But also sometimes I actually think that the best leadership is when you're not even seen at all because it's so you're so people can do their best and shine. So I think about a couple of positions ago that I had, it was a really thankless job and one of my first senior executive roles. And I was sent in to do the tough work and I then left when it started to get sort of into, I guess, the phase two bit. And somebody said to me that that's probably the most courageous form of leadership because I went in and did the tough work. No one will ever recognize it, but everyone will benefit from it. And knowing that and knowing that there will be no recognition at all, that it was the sweat and tears that I put in, that's to me what real leadership is because it's about that indelible imprint that you leave that that little L legacy and leaving it in a better place. So I guess for me, that's a real chalk and cheese distinction between my early years thinking you had to be up on the pulpit, you were leading from the front, you were very visible to actually it's about enabling and the best leaders should be able to create teams that can function uh, with very little you know, massaging or, or, um, or support around them. But you're here if you I'm here if you need me. I might just add another rogue element to this, if I may, Catherine, just to expand upon that last point, because what I see in that last piece you, you raised was servant leadership, what I like to call being that leader that is there to serve others as opposed to being that leader that is to serve. Is that the approach that you think that you got that accolade for? Uh, well, so in that particular job, I, I will never be recognised for what I did because I'd set it up for the next person to be mm. able to succeed. But I think if I if I explore what servant leadership is, I, to me, I mean, that's core to me being a public servant. You know, for 26 million Australians at, at, at its peak is being able to have that privileged position to work to the betterment of the whole community or part of the community on a daily basis. And that can have a, a multi-year or multi-generational effect. So I think there's a real responsibility and therefore a leadership piece in that for me. Mm. The standard question that we ask every guest, Catherine, is this, and I'm sure you've heard it a hundred times in various contexts, nature versus nurture. Leaders born or are they made? What's your view? I think they're made I, without a single doubt whatsoever. As I reflected earlier about that sort of charismatic leader being at the front, I think that's a little, you know, last century, that view. And I think, therefore, in recognising that leadership can be in a variety of guises, we just talked about servant leadership, for example, I think, therefore, you there's a, a an approach to leadership that pretty much any personality type can have and to still be effective. Because I guess, again, if I bring it back to what I think are the core principles of leadership, which is around influence, creating a really safe space for your team, um, that courage to be selfless. And I'd like to add one more, you know, knowing what you should own and what fights to pick and which ones not to. Um, I, I think that, um, that, there is a there is an approach out there for everybody and um, a lot of it's not intuitive like I think about where I've ended up and I would never 20 years ago have thought I would be in this position and it's not just because it's 
you know, I'm in a senior executive position and it's a title. It's actually around the trust that's in me to help grow the leaders of tomorrow and to have that, you know, that, that effect on a community um, that is really positive and for their betterment. So, um, so yeah. And I guess also the other thing is uh uh, you might have had this, you might recall, Ben, when you joined Untroon, when I joined ADFA, we did the Myers-Briggs test. And I clearly remember being an ESTJ, so an extrovert, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not at all. And it took me probably, a, uh, it took me leaving the military to discover where my natural yeah. leadership rhythm is for me to actually discover that um, I'm an introvert. I'd probably call myself an extroverted introvert. So again, that sort of rails against that traditional view of a charismatic leadership leader out front. Um, you know, I can play that role if I need to, but I can also um, uh, demonstrate leadership in, in a variety of other ways as well. Um, so, yeah. So there are other ESTJs out there. I, I actually remember doing, and I did the, that. I, I personally don't like it, but I've done it in two different uh, work contexts. And in at both times, and this was maybe five years apart, I was almost equal I and E, but the STJ were there. So um, some kind of morph between an introvert an extrovert and uh, one of the things um, that has come up in the podcasting process and I've seen this in I've seen this I think I'm learning this from the guests and 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 yourself too Ben is that has Ben's been a guest as well as being a, co- a, po- a co-host with me on these podcasts is that you get to learn a lot about what you're thinking about leadership when you have these discussions because you don't think about it all the time obviously but the nature of your responses on this podcast Catherine confirm in my head I've been thinking about this for a while that there's never going to be a definitive answer as to what leadership is, how you define it, because it morphs and changes depending on your own experiences. And I can bet you if we put out a survey and we asked 100 people to define leadership, just ask them that one question, there might be some commonalities between them, but I don't think you'd get the same response out of those 100 people. And I think the reason for that is we live such different careers when you're in leadership positions, whether that's in a paid or not-for-profit space or in the military context. And it, it makes having these discussions interesting because it's something that you You've got to keep working on. That's just a side thought from me, Ben. Thanks for introducing the personality profiling, Catherine, because that's something I do a lot of with a variety of current clients and, and former clients. And I was, am, and know that I am an ENFJ in the Myers-Briggs. But I will say this, I certainly do not believe that the entire human population can be categorized into 16 distinct personalities. So I do understand the, the context of it and how to understand it in the way that we need to, which is understanding our people and what makes them tick. The point you made that I thought was great, Eric, with perfect distinction and um, pause, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Conviction was, you said, made 100%. Leaders are made. Now, I think we've had a pretty decent split across our podcast guests, Eric, where most people generally sit on the fence. There's a part born, part made. And I think that if I reflect on my own answer from late last year or early last year, Eric, I think I might have been 70-30. I think I might have been 70% made, 30% born, which I'm probably going to stick with, but I'm, I'm certainly in your camp of made, Catherine. So, uh, yes, very good answer. It, it was interesting, Catherine, that when we asked, sorry, when Ben asked the question, you went to made 
it automatically like there, there was no there was not going to be any sitting on the fence so a previous guest mike house was speaking to me about his experiences in as a leader and you know, we're going through the podcast and and what have you and i asked the question this this final question to sort of conclude to conclude the podcast and i said is it nature and nurture and so he he sort of went through the response process and then he said look there's a couple of extra elements that people need to think about with this question and i thought oh, the, you know it's a binary question is is there extra elements and he said yeah one of them is choice so you choose to be a leader or you choose not to be a leader in any sphere of life yeah i didn't see that nuance and it was really good that he brought it up and then the other element was are you a person that gravitates towards lifelong learning and if you're not that it puts a different slant on that question about nature versus nurture because if it is about being made then those leaders that are made over time or through experience in the military like yours catherine and yours ben you've chosen to go down these pathways and you've chosen to keep learning because I'm obviously talking to two very intelligent, educated people. And so if you'd chosen not to be lifelong learners, you wouldn't. Uh, so sorry for those listening. The giggle was because my, my guests are looking at me like, am I talking about them? Yes, I am referring to you that if you choose not to be a learner, this is going to be a difficult conversation to have. And um, I, I thank um, uh, Mike for his uh, putting that in there. And I'm going to use that more often into the the future because i think it's an interesting segue uh sorry it's not segue an interesting addition to that question so i might throw to you catherine but what do you think about that as an additional thought piece to the nature versus nurture question i actually really like that eric the the choice piece it's a it's a good point oh it was great and i wish i'd thought about it but now i can't copyright it so anyway catherine back to you look i think that's i, I think both of those points that mike made are really important so um and uh, choice is something that I think that we uh, take for granted or perhaps don't expressly exercise. So not making a choice is a choice as well. Uh, so I think that's a really key thing. And then the second piece about that continuous learning, um, I think I touched on it before I talked about curiosity. You, everything needs to evolve. And that also helps in terms of being able to adapt your style to different people. Um, I know that I've had people who I've worked with before who I have just simply not been able to interact with, not not on a personality basis, but I've never quite understood what their motivation was and how to make them tick to then be able to try and work better with them and I there's a particular um, individual who I I feel like I I said before I don't like the word fail but I do feel like I failed them uh, they were part of my team and I could I never managed to to meet them halfway despite my best attempts and and that learning piece but I feel more equipped for next time but I'd like to add a third thing to what my uh, what Mike said and that is around comfort so the other thing is I think as part of that learning and that curiosity and that evolution is you can still demonstrate leadership and it doesn't have to be comfortable but you can still do it uh, so there are certain roles that I can adopt adapt to uh, so as I mentioned earlier I guess my preference is always to be to enable others to thrive and then they they do it themselves but if need be I can be the person who stands up out the front um, there was a situation a few years ago in a workplace working for a service delivery agency and we had third-party providers and one of them decided to exercise the release clause in their contract and they only gave us a couple of months notice and we had to transition thousands of clients to new providers and uh, everyone was sort of panicking and 
I instinctively, and I surprised myself, I stood up and essentially gave a SMEAC brief and told everybody, this is what we're doing and this is why. Back to that, you know, I'm happy to own my decisions based on the best information at the time. That's not a comfortable space for me, but I can do it and I can do it effectively. So I guess that's the third piece is, is around role model leadership in a number of different ways. They might not be comfortable, but you can still be effective. Sorry, Catherine, I'm going to have to pull you up there, mate. You can't use army terminology on me, mate. What? <laughs> What the hell is a SMEAC? For those listening, I'm, I can't even guess at this, so please help me with this, Catherine. What 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 does that acronym stand for? Let me just uh, preface this conversation by, I did chuckle then, uh, a SMEAC brief. I'm going to let Catherine give the uh, official answer, but it's where you really, really SMEAC them in the face. <laughs> I thought you were going to show some inter-service rivalry with a (laughs) SMEAC brief by an Air Force intelligence officer. The A is for air conditioning, isn't it, Catherine? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, look, it goes to show that you can take the person out of the military, but you can't always take the military out of the person. So thanks for pulling me up on that, Eric. So SMEAC is an acronym, which is um, the basis for which you can cover the the most essential information in the quickest period of time uh, to achieve an outcome. So S stands for situation, M is for mission, E is for execution, A is for administration, and C is for coordination. Command and communication. Yeah. Command and communication, yeah. Communication, so, yeah. so if I sort of step back. The Air Force doesn't have communication. <laughs> <laughs> from a signaler let's so let's let's looks- let, let's not have this rivalry people we've got to show united front no that that's cool so again adding so- adding to that question Catherine, that that's brilliant and thank you for that i think as we go along and, and so i'm not giving permission for i'm not having to give permission for people to analyze that nature versus energy thing but this is getting more interesting around the making of leaders and in your individual choice. So sorry, mate, keep going, Catherine. I'm just going to jump in here, uh, Eric, and expand upon Catherine's points about both choice and comfort, because I think it comes back to that enabling fact that Catherine made earlier, and that is despite the lack of an appointment, for instance, into a senior role, be it in the military, public service or commercial sector, I think choice in leadership can be very, very transactional. Using an example of a situation that occurs, for instance, someone who suddenly needs medical attention and all of a sudden people stand around going, well, who's going to take control of this situation? And having been, in in some respects, unfortunately, in circumstances where an individual has needed immediate medical attention, where you do your doctor ABCs, now that's an acronym I hope most people know, that you just step into both, be it comfortably or uncomfortably, to a leadership position and a very transactional position. So, and I think we can talk about personal anecdotes there, but I'd like to think that I encourage people in my line of work to always act in a position where you are influencing others and never, ever assume that others will step in and take that leadership role. And Catherine's made some great points about peer leadership, upwards leadership. I still believe junior staff of any level can be leaders by influencing their senior staff. And that could be simply by providing better information to ensure decisions can be made quicker. That, in my view, is leadership and a choice to be a leader in that position rather than just saying, I don't know how to do this, Catherine, can you help me? I just wanted to expand upon that point because it's a really interesting comment around choice, but equally that comfort. 
And that piece about junior junior people can influence their their leaders, Ben, I couldn't agree with you more because for me it's about being able to read the other person to ensure that they're in the most permissive mind frame to receive that information. So, you know, it's it's standing um, – it's like Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird and when he, when um, Scout learned about empathy and it's about standing in his shoes. And if you can do that, and then that's sort of, you know, you're 50% of the way there. Yeah, and in that same context, the antithesis of that situation that I will never let anyone get through is when the comment is made to me or others in a certain position, oh, Ben, I'm not going to do that. You're the boss. You make the big bucks. You make the decision. And I don't know how many times I've had to say, stop right there. The idea of this structure is that we all help each other and that you're here to provide me with information and guidance that I can make decisions on, uh, not to sit there and go, oh, I got nothing. So, yeah, that, that comment never, ever, I never let anyone get away with that comment. I support it. And I can understand why the frustration is saying it's not, it's above my pay grade means you've given up thinking and you're just giving it on to someone else. And I think that's a coward's way out, whether you're in a formal position of leadership or not saying I've got nothing. It's on you because you make more money than me and you turn around and walk away. I think that sucks. I I, I could never do it. And I, I think it's a, a cowardly thing to do. Look, uh, Catherine and Ben, we are at the end of the podcast. And before we go, Catherine, we have a, a section to this is about uh, some final thoughts. So, any final thoughts before we sign off, Matt? Yes, I, I have one. And that is we've spoken a lot today about, I guess, physical leadership because it's about interpersonal react interactions. But I just wanted to introduce at the end of the podcast a concept that's really taken, I'm really taken with over the last uh, few years in particular, and that's around thought leadership. So what, you know, it's a, it's a fancy sounding term, but for me, there is an intellectual component to leadership, not just the interpersonal. And that can have a much more far wide reach and indelible impact on other people by contributing in that way. Um, so I guess what I I'm used to seeing that in in a um, in a commercial and not-for-profit environment, but I'm really delighted in recent years to see that in defence, uh, in terms of looking at other in- industries for inspiration and seeing how those lessons learnt can be brought into the military. Because traditionally it's the military who's been innovative, you know, in a technological or in a structural kind of way, and other industries learn but it's so it's really great to see the other way around and um, there's a particular uh, air force blog called central blue and that that whole purpose is to encourage that intellectual discourse and that contestability of ideas and um, there's one regular contributor wing commander travis uh, travis hallen who i really enjoy reading his views on things and demonstration of thought leadership it's just a different approach and i just like to to put that out there as another prism of leadership that we often don't sort of talk about uh, yeah, great point. And even in my line of work, I am regularly reminded that there is a responsibility to be a thought leader in my industry, not only to continue to advise and, and educate my client base, but equally to be at the forefront of things that are changing in relation to both uh, styles of work, technology, um, and equally the way that businesses are operating. So uh, it's a really good point. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate the uh, conversation, Catherine. No, thank you. It's been an absolutely, de- absolutely delightful conversation. 
Cheers. So for those listening, this has been Talking Leadership. We've been speaking to Catherine Walsh. Catherine, Ben, thank you for your time. Great. Thank you. Great, Catherine. I really appreciate the time. This has been Talking Leadership. Thank you. And I'll catch you all. We'll catch you all on the next podcast.